First Kings chapter 6. We're working our way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Old Testament. We're going to pause and ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are here. Uh, open our hearts as we open the scriptures, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to us in deep and profound and everlasting ways. We yield our spirits to yours and our will to your goodwill. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was in an antique shop the other day, just kind of poking around, killing some time. My wife is away at the pastor's wife's uh, wives retreat, and uh, she'll be coming back even today with the gals. And, you know, I was thinking about getting her something or just... You know, I also like to uh, look for old Bibles, and I collect them. Those, those little old Bibles, that just you see the little handwriting in it, just wonderful. I have a couple from the 1800s. It's, it's really nice. Um, but I was there in the antique shop, and I was the only one in there, except uh, the, the older gentleman who was working. And I asked him eventually about the older Bibles, and he was helping me go through all the shelves looking for them. And of course, it was just me and him and the old Bibles. And, you know, <laughs> it was awful quiet in there, so I started a conversation. And, uh, you know, he was telling me all the reasons why uh, he doesn't need the church and all the reasons why he can do okay his way, he can go out to uh, the beach at Bodega, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but he can worship God on the beach and in the mountains is just as well as he can worship God in the church. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, that's all we ever hear. Well, I had the opportunity to help him to see things in a different perspective and, and just let him know how important it is. And, you know, uh, he was very resistant. And, he, and uh, I said, how old are you again? And he said, 73. And I said, you realize? And he goes, yeah, I can kick over and die any time I'm a heart attack. And I said, yeah. And then what? And then he said, then the Lord will talk to me, and I'm all ears. I said, sir, it, it's in this life. And I, I actually had a Bible that we found. And so I had the Bible in my hands. Uh, so uh, it's his way. It, it, you're going to bank your eternal life on your own thoughts. Uh, where did you get that information that it's cool to just do your own thing and worship God in your own way? How about his way, his appointed way? And I'm holding the Bible. And he said, ah, I don't want to hear it. And I said, okay, well, I'll be praying for you and thank you for uh, this nice Bible. You know, he didn't give it to me. I paid for it, but <laughs> just so you know. Uh, such a demonic deception, the idea that you don't need God's people or to come to God's appointed place. Uh, and, and what a fitting way to introduce tonight because we're talking about God's appointed place. God's people and God's temple, and uh, we're going to take a look at that. So it's a nice way to, to sort of introduce First uh, Kings chapter 6. Uh, the people of God have always had a place. God has given a structure, a way, 
uh, to know him, to meet with him, to worship him, to hear his word, to do business with him. There's always been a focal point from the beginning. So fresh out of the slave pits, uh, without delay, the Lord says, build me a place, a portable tent, edifice, like a worship center, but it was all uh, tented, and we call that the tabernacle, which is just a fancy word for tent, and uh, in Hebrew, it's the mishkan, which just simply means dwelling place. It's the place that God chose to, to manifest his own presence and dwell in a place there in, in a way that he didn't do it any other place. So in other words, if you were in the wilderness back when the slaves were liberated and the Jews were making their way to the promised land, there was only one place and there's only one way to approach God and God said, this is the designated way. There's a place. There's no Lone Ranger Jews out in the wilderness doing their own thing. Oh, I could know God out here, this wonderful mountain range here in Mount Sinai. No, you can't. God said, this is the place. It's called the tabernacle. And to know God in the fullest sense of that word, you'd have to be a part of that. So uh, I have a picture of that tabernacle here. Moses was given a revelation in, and in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, uh, it was a pattern of heavenly realities. So through giving a structure, God was saying to the whole world and to the Jews, this, this is the redemption story. Every part of that tented complex serves to speak of God's redemption plan. Everything from the high priest to the offering. Uh, it tells you about God's character, God's nature, God's holiness, the judgment against sinful man, uh, the needed sacrifice for our sins, the splendor and the glory of God. Everything you can imagine about redemption is seen right there. Now, if you're some Lone Ranger cowboy out there with your own little antique shop somewhere around Mount Sinai and you're saying, I don't gotta go to the, to the God's appointed place to do things and approach God in God's appointed way. You'd never, you don't have a chance. You're clueless. You don't, know, you don't know the story. This is the way that God appointed. And so for 480 years, that served as a way to approach God and to worship him. And then, of course, we have the next slide and where we are tonight, some 480 years have elapsed and now it's time to make a permanent structure based on the tabernacle. So, so, so now that Israel gets into the land, okay, they're not wandering anymore. They're in the promised land. They've dispossessed seven nations of Canaan and God has settled them. The 12 tribes have received their inheritance so now you think, okay, now you can take your walk. You know, go to Caesarea along the beach, go to Jaffa. You know, you can do your own thing because, you know, you were wandering. You kind of needed the tent. You needed to kind of get a focal point for the Lord. But now that you're in the land, hey, you're free to just kind of do things your own way. No. Now we're going to make it a permanent structure for how long? For a thousand years. 600 years of Solomon's temple that we're, we're seeing built right now in chapter six of 1 Kings. 600 years, it'll be destroyed. It'll be rebuilt, right, by uh, Nehemiah and Ezra under their leadership. And then it'll last 400 years until Rome comes in in 8070 and destroys it. 
uh, a thousand years of a place that you had to come and, and, and associate with God's people and Judaism and everything about that is screaming the story of redemption. It's all speaking about Jesus and faith and cleansing and, and everything we need to know to approach him. And so here in 1 Kings uh, 5 through 8, we're seeing that the, the, this is now twice as big as the worship complex of the tent. So uh, now the permanent dwelling place is going to be the temple, Solomon's temple. Now, uh, how about today? So Jesus comes, the God-man comes through the Jewish people. He fulfills the whole thing. He's the high priest. He's the sacrifice. He's offering. He's offering. So the God-man fulfills the whole thing. We don't need it anymore because the God-man just said, this has been a picture for 1,500 years of me and what I'm going to do for everybody. So he emerges from the Jewish people and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so now we go to him, but where is his manifested presence, his dwelling place? Well, I'm glad you asked because there's a place, and I have these, the people of God worshiping. Maybe that slide can come up. That's his new dwelling place. It's called the the gathered church. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. Jesus, what's wrong with one? What's wrong with one little cowboy out doing his own thing and saying, I can worship God over here by myself? Jesus said, I don't manifest myself in the same way. You cannot have church by yourself. That's why Jesus said, where two or three gather together, there I am in the midst of them. That is what the church is about. Uh, Listen to this. In him, the whole building is joined together, speaking of the church in a spiritual sense. And he says, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says this, for we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female, doesn't matter. We're all baptized into one body. So when you get saved, you are added to the church that all people who have Christ in their hearts, who are part of this invisible church, and God, when we gather together, God's presence dwells within us. And so we are the new temple. What did Peter call us? He said, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and we are living stones built around him. When we gather together, the proclamation of the word, the worship of the Lord, the giving, all of these things, the sending of missionaries, God's presence is now in the midst of people who who gather together uh, as living stones. So so that that is who, who we are. And I'll tell you the truth. If you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes into you, you are added to the church whether you like it or not. And and you have to find a local expression somewhere of the church. You can, God did not design it. uh, Yes, you can pray on the beach. 
Yes, you can have a wonderful devotional time, but you cannot have church on the beach unless the church is on the beach. <laughs> Amen? Amen? That's the way it is. Calvary Chapel, Maui, can have church <laughs> on the beach because they're the church on the beach. But you can't just by yourself go and have church because wherever two or three are gathered together, that's where you can have church because the Holy Spirit, what? Can you see that? That he manifests himself uniquely when the body is gathered as living stones, he comes in a way he does not manifest outside of that. It's just different. And that's why uh, he has an appointed way. So knowing God, one writer put it this way, knowing God, walking with him, happens as he manifests himself, his truth, his word, his will, in a unique and exclusive way through the assembly of believers in a way that that cannot happen when we're alone. So that said, and with now a rather lengthy but necessary introduction, if I say, do say so myself, uh, this house that we're, we're seeing built now uh, is given a lot of details for two chapters. And thank you for the, the slide there. I appreciate that. Now, we're given a lot of details on spiritually immature people when they get to uh, sections like this, Exodus 25, where it talks about every little uh, O-ring in, in the curtains in the tabernacle. Well, we're going to get into a little bit of that uh, tonight and next week. And spiritually immature people just skip over those kinds of things. And, and since we're not spiritually immature, we're interested in those details. Amen? 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 Amen. Yeah, I thought you were out there. Okay. First uh, Kings 6 and 7 will tell us in the details of building this house for God, who God is, how he can be known, what life in him is like, uh, who we are as his people, and, and really, uh, we're his house, right? And the church is where he's doing his work, and guess what? Where we're all headed to, ultimately, the dwelling place of God. What is that famous Statement from the throne of God in Revelation 21. Now, finally, is the dwelling place of God. And he shall be their God and they shall be his people. No more crying, sorrow, mourning, or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. And so that, that's the whole we're reading this because it's prophetic foreshadowing of the place, the house that Jesus went to where he said, there's lots of room and I'm going to prepare a dwelling place so that we can be together. That's what this is about. So when you're reading all the little details and everything, just know that it's painting a picture of where we're all headed. And so uh, with that, chapter six, one through eight, in the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portico, or the, the lobby, at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple. 
that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made the narrow uh, clerestory windows. Now, clerestory just means above eye level. So, you know, those little narrow windows you can see up on the second uh, story of a building. That's what these are referring to. Uh, Against the walls of the main hall and the inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. Uh, The lowest floor was five cubits wide the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level uh, and from there to the third. So let's pause there. We're not going to get much further, but we will get a little bit further. If you're taking notes, number one, the quiet work of God. The quiet work of God. Now, the dates are quite helpful here in an, in, uh, uh, from a historical standpoint. Um, So we moderns like to date time from uh, the cross or from Jesus appearing. And uh, we see everything as before the Messiah or after, you know, it's the year 2013, Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord, right? Well, the Jews dated things from uh, the appearance of the first deliverer. See, Moses. So uh, they dated things from slavery time, before slavery, and after deliverance. And so we sort of do the same thing, but with Jesus. So verse 1 says uh, that after 480 years, uh, Solomon began to build the temple. Now, we happen to know now it's the year 966 B.C., now, this, these dates like this are very, very helpful because you get the whole framework of the Old Testament from a couple statements like this. And what's really exciting, well, you know that the Exodus would have happened in the year 1447 B.C. Solomon's reign, 971 to 913 uh, B.C. It lines up perfectly with secular history. So a few quick insights I want to make just from the opening right here. There's some evidence that it took them three years to collect the timber from Lebanon to get it down uh, the coast and uh, across from Joppa to Jerusalem. So if that's the case, if Solomon begins building in the fourth year of his reign, then he had to have begun organizing in year one. So all that does is show me the wisdom of spiritual priorities, all right? So first things first your walk with God. You're, everybody's building something. We're all in a building project. We're all gathering and collecting and we're doing our thing. We're paying our bills, we're, we're saving. We're, we've got a life, right? Where's the worship of God? Where's your walk with God? Is it first and foremost? Because you can have a, a lot of stuff going on and a lot of accomplishments, but if you don't have you, the work of God first and foremost, in your life, all of that is gonna be in vain. Um, And secondly, I see this, 
Hundreds and hundreds of dates and places and people's names and world events are listed in the Bible, like this. He gives you 480 years from the slave pits is the house is being built, and now we know dates. It all lines up with everything. Every time you have a date, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of leaders' names. You have titles of kings and pharaohs and wars and, and events and all kinds of things, and world history validates and verifies the scriptures as true. And so the second thing I see is just the, the uh, veracity of the scriptures, the truthfulness of the word of God. It's just amazing to me. I didn't point out, I got a picture of a rock here. Uh, in Acts 13, on Sunday, we were talking about uh, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark going to the island of Cyprus on the first missionary journey. And they got to a place called Pat. Paphos, and they uh, won Sergius, Sergius Paulos to the Lord. And uh, a rock in 1887 was found near Paphos with Sergius Paulos's name on it. Now, every you will find that over and over and over again, but you don't have that in other holy books. You do not have that. The Book of Mormon, there are Hundreds of cities named. You can't find them. You can find all of the ones in the Bible. You can't find any in that book. Why? Uh, they name plants and animal life. That There's no record that those plants and the animal life ever lived there. Uh, so what we have in the Bible, don't take that for granted. Every, I mean, even when it describes how Jesus' announcement came, you know, it was in this year of this king and this governor, right? and, and this Herod was, and this tax thing, and Rome, and all of that. It just, it's a wonderful witness when the Bible uses dates and times and places. You can just say, this is not a fairy tale. World history it validates everything the Bible has to say when it gives dates like that. And the third little thing I noticed is, notice the correlation that the Holy Spirit says, this house of God got started 480 years after another house, a house of slavery, a house of suffering, a house of death, a, a house of oppression. And, and, and God keeps his promise that the whole redemption story is about taking us from death and slavery and bondage of sin and self and the devil and death and the grave to his house where God is our father and life and truth and goodness and joy and righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's the story. So there's a little link here between just tying it in a, just a creative way, it's 480 years from this house to this house, but they get there because that's God's plan. As for you, you were dead in your sins in which you used to live as you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the, the, the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then listen to what he says. And get, you, you, we're gonna go from the house of being dead in our sins. Listen to this. But God, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. 
watch this, it is by grace that you've been saved and God raised, raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. It's the whole story. The whole story repeats over and over in the Bible. The house of death, the house of slavery, the house of oppression, the house of sin, the house of condemnation and hell and the grave, but because of God's great love. Those who just simply trust are, are taken up and seated in heavenly places with him, another house, the dwelling, the presence of God, our Father. Okay, so uh, that said, the basic dimensions are given. The cubit is uh, ancient measurement from elbow to pointer finger, 18 inches, all right? And so what you have is not a really big building. You have a building as uh, 90 feet long, so it just... Uh, a, li a little bit uh, longer than this room, all right? 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. So it's two-thirds of this width of this room. And it's three stories, 45 feet high. So 45 feet high, 90 long, 30 wide. Not so big, but nobody's supposed to be in it except the symbolism and the uh, sacrifice and all of these things about God. There's no, no chairs in it. You could fit 250 people in it, but only the high priest would go in and out. So it's not a place to hold people. The courtyard, the courtyard of the, the second temple, just to give you an idea, the Temple Mount, is 34 acres. So they would gather, Israel gathers around in courtyards like that. In fact, we could put the picture of the temple back up. I think it'll be helpful as we talk about it. And so the dimensions from one to seven are given. The lobby, um, the windows, high set, of course, to let the light from heaven come in, of course. And the roo rooms are surrounding. If you can take a look there, you'll see around the edges there. What's interesting to me are the rooms where the priests were accommodated and storage. And so that, that went all the way around on both sides. There were rooms. And so the actual temple that we're talking about is this edifice here. And it's divided into holy place and most holy behind the curtain. All right, and so that's what we're talking about, and, and, and we don't have time to go into all of those things, but we will probably make reference to a lot of them. Now, the interesting thing that I wanna talk about is this quiet, all right? No tools, no hammers in the making of this great work of God. Now, have you ever had the luxury, um, or, the, the, or I should say the misfortune of living near a construction site? Right? No fun, right? Saturday morning, you want to sleep in, and then suddenly you hear, you know, something going on. It's just not a lot of fun, right? Now, uh, God didn't want any hammering or chiseling, no cacophony of harsh, dissonant, uh, chaotic, uh, traditional construction sounds. It doesn't speak well of God's nature or his intent with mankind. The whole purpose of coming into the place where God dwells is to uh, find peace with him, to be reconciled 
to him and with him. And so he doesn't want a lot of clamoring and noise and that kind of thing like that. Uh, Luke chapter two and verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven, the angels were singing, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's the whole point of the gospel, is peace. And so we're gonna see his prohibition of iron tools is, and hammering is, is to accentuate the, the purpose of meeting with him. Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Even the gospel message, Isaiah 52 and verse seven, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Gospel's all about peace. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 20 calls us ambassadors. What's our whole thing? He said, you represent God. God has given you, Christian, the ministry of reconciliation so that you are going to somebody who's estranged from God and life and you're telling them, be reconciled to God, accept the peace that God has made with you. You do not have to make peace with God. God's already made peace with you. You need to accept what he's done uh, for you uh, through Christ. And so... It makes sense, but it goes even deeper than the fact of being reconciled to God. The state of being, of being a Christian, the shalom peace, which means the wellness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides really noisy waters. No, it leads me beside quiet waters. God's heart for us is soul rest and peace and quiet. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not like the world gives. But I give you peace, Jesus said, John chapter 14 and verse 27. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, uh, let your requests be being known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts through Christ Jesus our Lord. If anything, over and over and over again, I love one of my favorite verses. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. No hammers. No iron tools. You do that somewhere else, but when God has put in together his dwelling place, I don't want to hear any of that clamoring. It's going to come together in this quiet, regal, supernatural, perfectly fitted work of God in a gentle, quiet, peaceable way. That's just an amazing testimony that, that, that God could just say, I don't want my building the way that everyone in the whole world does it. I don't want the loud hammers and all of that violence there. I just want something that's wonderful and peaceful. By way of contrast, you know, the enemy, the devil, he likes the hammer. He likes the chisel of divisal. No, sorry, the chisel of division. <laughs> the chisel of division. He loves that. Oh, bring that tool in. Oh, they're all getting along. They're just going to go 
bring in the hammer. You know, that's how he is. Chaos, confusion. Uh, God's work is calm and ordered and peaceful. The hurricane comes on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, be quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. Come away with me, Jesus told his disciples, so that we can get some rest and quiet. The most attractive thing about the gospel to me was that invitation I told you about that I saw on a church marquee on Market Street. I was on a bus. I was 19 years old. And I, my head just turned, and I saw this church marquee, and it said, come to me, and I will give you rest. And uh, just so attractive. That's what God wants for us. Peace, come to me, I'll give you rest. Find your rest in me. Just wonderful. No hammers on sight. Eight through 10, a few more details, and then a surprise interruption, and that's as far as we can go. So just a few more verses. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So we built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites, and I will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. Now he's going to go on with a lot of detail, but here we have it. So we have the quiet work of God, and let's finish up with the conditional promise from God. Now, there are two kinds of promises and two types of covenants in the Bible that you should be aware of. One is conditional and one is unconditional. And you call the unconditional one a unilateral covenant. In other words, uh, there's no ifs. God just says, look, this is all up to me. A unilateral uh, covenant is a one-sided agreement, all right? So God makes those. He, makes them with, he made them with Israel. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless those who, cur- who bless you. And all the earth is going to be blessed. You're going to be front and center. This is going to be a great nation. No ifs. I'm just going to do it. That's called an unconditional promise. All right? And, and so we just see, even, even in the end times, in the world to come, called the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign on a restored earth that looks like the Garden of Eden, Christ Jesus will rule from Jerusalem on his throne, and Israel shall be like an economic, just wonderful superpower, just displaying the glory of God in that kingdom. Why? Because it has nothing to do with Israel. Romans 11 and 25 uh, says that all Israel shall come to a conversion experience, and so uh, it's just uh, unilateral. Uh, Same with us with the church, with Christians. He says, you know, the covenant I have with you is a covenant of grace, and it's signed in my blood. It's about my blood. He says, take this cup 
It is the new covenant in my blood. No ifs. Well, yeah, you receive him, right? But you don't earn anything. No ifs. You're saved. Those who received him, uh, he glorifies, he, he's called, he glorifies, uh, and uh, he justifies, it's, it's over. That's just the way it is. However, now in the middle of a building project, mind you, out of nowhere, perhaps a prophet or an inner witness, the Holy Spirit speaks in the middle of everything going on. We interrupt this building program to bring you a word from our sponsor, all right? Now, if anyone's a sponsor, it's the Lord because a sponsor technically is one who's funding everything for the work before us. So I have a proposition for you, Solomon. It's called a conditional promise. Oh, we don't like those. We like the unilateral ones. Just, God, just tell me, you know, I'm going to do this. I don't need your ifs, ands, or buts, all right? He's got conditional promises in the Bible. Now, the prophetic uh, word comes, and here it is. I'll just sum it up for you. In all this excitement and wonder in this building project, uh, Mr. Solomon, don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. Don't lose sight. Don't get distracted. Uh, Don't forget the whole point. Don't get cocky and proud because things are going well. Look, Hiram sent all the timber. You got all the forced labor you need. You got all the materials. God is building it. It's coming together. Look at the work. Look, everybody has this going on in their lives. When, and what is it about human nature, folks? As soon as everything's going well, you know, that's when suddenly we don't need to pray as much and we can skip out on church a little bit more. We don't need to be reading our Bibles or, or being on our knees so much or fasting and praying, all of that, because everything's going so well. And so God knows Solomon's heart and human nature. Everything's working, man. You're living the dream. You're thinking about your father and his prophecy that my son shall sit on the throne and build this glorious house, and it's happening. You're on the throne, and prayers are being answered. God is with you. You have favor. He shut down your enemies. You're living the dream. Don't blow it. That's what he's saying here. And, and it's just an amazing thing. He's saying this is a house, but what's important about a house? The father who lives in the house. Don't lose sight of that. It, if you're building me a house, the most important thing is my relationship with you. So, Solomon, if you break communion with me while you're building the house, isn't that just like a big fat paradox? What what will it matter if you have this beautiful work of God that you have put your hand to, you've given to, you've sacrificed for, you've prayed about, and then you're not walking with me and you're disobeying me and you're doing your own thing. What good is the building? What good is the work? What good is your life? What good is everything you're pouring yourself into? Outwardly, it looks splendid, but he's saying, could you just not blow it so that you make it all vain in vain? because you're not walking with me. The outer life, building, schmilding, accomplishments, sparkle, the gold, all the money. Who cares? Who cares? If God says, you're not even walking with me. Don't even talk to me. So he's saying, just let me interrupt you. Could you just, just, just stop building right now? Can we talk here 
this is gonna mean nothing. Everything you're doing is going to mean zero if you don't obey me and walk with me and love me and let me love you. Here's a paraphrase. About this building, concerning this temple, and what's really important here, Solomon, listen up. If you do things my way, I'll make sure what I told your father David will come true. You'll be a happy camper as king. Your sons and grandsons will be happy campers as heirs. And Israel will be happy campers as a blessed nation because they'll follow your lead. Get a load of this. Their blessing depends on your obedience. Their blessing, their well-being depends on you and your uh, obedience. Well, how fair is that? Welcome to life and reality in the kingdom of God. It's, it's the way it is. Living stones are knit together, and when one of them crumbles, the whole building feels it. That's just the way it is. And everybody loves to say, oh, I'm just doing my thing. Who am I hurting over here? Yeah, we hear that all the time. God is saying, Solomon, a lot of people will be hurt if you disobey me. And God, I hear God trying to motivate obedience by by kind of uh, stoking the natural inclinations in every human heart to, to love their offspring and to love the people around them. Saying, listen, hey, I'm thinking right now of being at Azure Acres a few years ago. It's a rehab facility. Uh, I don't know if it's still there. It was there about 10 years ago in the woods there in Sebastopol, beautiful place. I got called there. I don't even remember how. I sat on the edge of a bed with a full-grown man there clutching his Bible, crying and telling me how it happened. I just started drinking, he said. I just started drinking. Then I started going to casinos. And I got a habit. And I started gambling. And I started spending money that we didn't have. And my wife filed for divorce. And he's crying, sobbing, telling me. He's got the picture of these two blonde little girls, angels. Just, I don't see them anymore. She won't talk to me. She's had it with me. Oh, and I've lost my job. I I was embezzling to pay my gambling debts because, but I didn't really know what I was doing because I was drinking all the time. Career, gone. Litigation, in trouble. His wife, out of the house. The kids, gone. He said, I had everything. Everything was going great. And then step by step. How fair is it? Yeah, I'm sorry. You've hurt everybody because of his behavior. He's not thinking about the kids. He's not thinking about the wife when he's doing his thing. I told you about my sister who called me when her pastor uh, was found out in adultery, a rather big name. I mentioned it before. It was Pastor Paul Shepard in the Bay Area down there, South Bay. And my sister loved him. My sister had a real tough Christian life, but the Lord really changed her through his ministry. And she called sobbing on the phone, and in sobs, she said, 
I feel like I can't go on. I can't think of God in the same way. I I'm, I'm, I'm just feel like somebody kicked me in the stomach, sobbing. Was he thinking about my sister? And the hundreds and hundreds of people felt that way. Look, I'm sorry to tell you, but God says, I interrupt your little building program of your life, because you're in one right now. And I just want to interrupt and just say, hey, isn't that cool? It's cool, cool, wonderful. You're doing things, you know, answering prayers and all of this is wonderful stuff. I just want to just tell you right now, obey me or there's going to be big trouble for everybody and you're going to cause a lot of pain to people. Well, I'm not related. I'm not like a pastor where, you know. You know what? You are. You're a living stone. You're connected. And when you disobey, it's not only bad for you, and it hurts the Father's heart, right? The two most important things in it, but also the people who love you and are connected to you, who look to you. Now, is Solomon uh, disheartened uh, heartened at all when it says, yeah, unless you obey all my commands? All my commands. Three times it says, keep my commands, obey my commands, and all my commands. Well, John would say, Solomon, listen up. Let me speak to you from a thousand years later. His commands are not burdensome. The Lord was asked, which of the commandments are the most important? And the Lord said, let me just sum it up to you with two. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love others with the same focus and intensity with which you love yourself. He says, those two commands, the whole Old Testament hangs on. So if you do just do one and two, you, you've kept them all. Loving God with everything you have and loving others. You can do that. We can do that. Solomon, you can do that. You know, you don't have to get, get all freaked out. I could never keep all the commandments. You know what? Just love God. How could you not? It's not a burden to love God when you know he became a man and let people strip him and, and then nail him to a piece of wood that he created all on your behalf, right? That's not hard to love somebody like that. So he's just saying, love me, obey me, walk. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for your kids. It'll be good for the people in your sphere of influence. That's what he's saying. Don't get carried away. Don't lose sight of the whole reason that we walk with God is to love God, to obey him. And oftentimes we look around, we, we see buildings all around us. All you are buildings, right? Nobody knows how you're building. Nobody knows what's really going on inside your heart except God. And it's so easy to, to, to build a beautiful building and nobody knows inside. You know, a long time ago, I stopped talking. It's very cold inside, you know, but the outside looks really good. It's easy to love God. It is easy to love God. It's easy to love somebody you love, right? It's easy to love my wife. It's, I mean, I, thou shalt not have any girlfriends other than Barb. You know what? Seriously? No, there are no girls that live up to my wife's the way that I feel about my wife. You know my wife. Who compares with Barb? Seriously, right? Uh, honestly, that's how I feel. Uh, and, uh, you know, hey, thou shalt be nice to her and say nice things to her, and thou shalt make her happy. Oh, oh, such a hard thing to do. It's not a hard thing to do. 
when you love somebody. So let us start living our Christian life and building, you're building, you're building, (laughs) we're building. Let's build in love and not lose sight of the whole point of building is that it's for God's glory and for his presence and for his blessing. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We, we just bow our hearts and we just confess it's really hard, Lord, to, to do all of these uh, things to get it. It's just hard for us, so help us. Remind us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. From the numbering of Israel, he purchased, David purchased a piece of property on Mount Moriah, which is where the temple is going to be built. From Bathsheba will be born after the infant who died in judgment. The second baby is Solomon. From David's two greatest sins comes Solomon and the property to build this temple to be a dwelling place where men can come and be reconciled to God and see the glory of God. What does that say to us? It doesn't motivate us to go out and say, oh, because uh, grace abounds where sin abounded and grace so much more. But it says, you know what? There's, there's hope. There's hope that God can take all our failures and our weaknesses and our greatest sins and he can say, look what I can do. I can make a Solomon and I, I can build a temple there. I can do a great work as we confess and repent, soften our hearts. Just an amazing, amazing thing. Solomon from Bathsheba and the threshing floor, the Jebusite there in Jerusalem for the temple, Mount Moriah, from numbering and taking the census. Unbelievable. What a merciful God. A bottomless ocean of grace for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that bottomless ocean of mercy and love and help us not exclude ourselves we always think it's always for everybody else except us Lord but it is for us we are not outside the bounds of your great love and mercy so help us to build with all of these things in mind and most importantly just to love you and to be pleasing in your sight in Christ's name Amen